are about to listen to the full interview with Steve Godfrey. Sections of it were originally included in our Beast of Bray Road episode. If you haven't listened to the full episode, we recommend you go listen. It'll provide context for this interview. Steve was married to Linda Godfrey for nearly 50 years. He told us about how Linda first learned about the story and the media interest that followed. Hi, first off, I want to thank you for allowing me to uh, be on your show. It was uh, kind of an honor, I think, to to have you reach out to me. My name's Steve Godfrey. I'm uh, Linda Godfrey's husband for almost 50 years. Well, actually, it was 50 years. I grew up on a dairy farm near Milton, Wisconsin, which is about 35 miles south of the city of Madison and just a little bit north of the uh, Illinois-Wisconsin state line. There was a s- small dairy farm, and I actually attended a one-room schoolhouse till about seventh grade. And then I got to go to the big city of Milton, which is about 3,500 people. I went to school at Milton East, and Linda went to school at Milton West. I ended up uh, graduating from Milton High School. Went. I had a talent for science and for mathematics, so I ended up I was also an outdoorsman, so I I liked the environment. I ended up going to college at one of the Wisconsin State Schools and and got a degree in civil engineering. My emphasis was environmental engineering and uh, specifically water and wastewater treatment. I worked as a consultant for many years with uh, helping um, communities and industries with water and wastewater treatment. So, So that's kind of my work background. I knew Linda in grade school and high school. We were friends, but uh, not close or anything, but we started dating in my senior year, or in actually her senior year, we were classmates. After we graduated, I went to college at Platteville to get my engineering degree, and Linda went to um, University of Whitewater, which is just outside of Milton, and uh, she started on a, um, a degree for art education and music. We actually got married my senior year when I was in college, and Linda had not quite graduated yet, but but um, we lived at Platteville on campus or as part of the campus community for about a year and a half. And uh, when I graduated from college, my first job was with a consulting firm in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And that's about uh, an hour north of city of Milwaukee, right on, on Lake Michigan. We were there for about three years working and Linda actually went to um, University of Oshkosh and got a degree in art education from there. When the opportunity came up, which was about three years um, later, we decided to, to take an offer to transfer to actually was an engineering firm in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. And that was 25 miles from, from our hometown and it just seemed like a really good move to get back and be Close to home, but not exactly home, if you know what I mean. It was a, just a, a, a nice area, rural area. And uh, that that's, uh, was kind of the start of how we got into um, a Walworth County area. And can you maybe tell me a little bit about Linda's career leading up to her time at the week? Well, Linda was, she was always talented in art and vocal music. She was, she was smart, outgoing. Uh, when she was in grade school, she would, she told me that she would, she would write plays to be performed, and she'd always write herself as the main character of the play. So that, that was kind of set the stage for, uh, I think, her personality moving forward. Uh, she wrote for the school newspapers. When she got, she got her um, uh, art degree from UW 
Oshkosh, and, I, and she started working as a part-time art teacher for the rural schools around uh, Walworth County. And she did that for a few years, and then she st- she started doing quite a few different things. She she for a time she was a librarian, worked at the local library. She was a commercial artist. Linda was very talented as an artist, and she actually had work that was. Um, featured in the New Yorker magazine at one time. So, I mean, she was very professional and, and, and she enjoyed the art. She designed hundreds of rubber stamps and had a small business there. And then she started doing editorial cartoons and she enjoyed that. She she had met a um, very successful syndicated cartoonist who lived in Lake Geneva. She talked to him and she she thought that would be kind of fun to uh, see if she could establish some kind of a, a cartoon strip. She worked with him. She started doing um, editorial cartoons. She didn't really have an outlet for them, so she went to the Walworth County Week, which was a local newspaper that covered events. I think it actually was a, f- a free newspaper that pretty much went to every residence in Walworth County. And she she started she approached them to see if they would be interested in their cartoons and i they they said that they would and i think they paid her ten dollars a week to produce a a cartoon she did that for uh, several weeks in fact um right here i'm looking at uh in 1991 92 and 93 linda was actually in the uh, best edit editorial cartoonist of the year book for basically the entire U.S. So she she was talented at it. She was good at it. I don't, maybe they upped her pay to $15, but but she she would hang around. She, she really didn't do a lot of writing per se at that time, but she she was always, she was good at it. And, and she was hanging around and um, at, at some point the opportunity came up where the uh, the week was looking for someone to write some articles. So they, they asked Linda, she started doing a couple articles and she, she was good as a reporter and they, she ended up doing a weekly um, article that she called, um, that's all she wrote. Probably could have been syndicated nationally, <laughs> it was so good. But um, she started doing that. She had a pretty good following of people looking forward to seeing her articles in the, in the newspaper. And then just by chance, she happened to be in the office one day and someone had been reporting on, on some sightings of what they called a werewolf. Everybody thought that was pretty wacky, and, and actually none of the, the writers for the paper wanted to take the story. They thought it was, they're going to go see a bunch of crackpots, and Linda decided, well, it seemed pretty good, <laughs> interesting to her. So she took that uh, opportunity to write that story, and that pretty much changed her life. So how did that story take shape for Linda? Like where, from the very beginning to finding the first witnesses, like how did that story kind of play out for her in terms of writing it? When she started, well, the first thing she she came home and was telling me about kind of unusual story she was going to write, and she asked me if I knew where Bray Road was, and I said, "Well, yeah, I I do know where Bray Road is, and in fact, that Bray Road was a little bit of a shortcut for me to take sometimes when I would go from Elkhorn to Racine, so I I, I knew the road pretty well, and and I will tell you that 
it was, and I remember telling Linda this. I said, yeah, I've been on this road and it's, it's just outside of Elkhorn, just outside the city. And I said, the one thing about it, I said, it's, there's nothing special about the road. It's only about two miles long, but it's, I always get kind of a creepy feeling when I drive down it. I said, I don't know what it is. And, it, and this is the honest God truth. It was always, it just seemed not right during the day or during the night. It was always just a, something kind of unusual about it. She contacted, I think it was three different witnesses who all reported um, within a short period of time, it was about maybe six months or so, they had seen something, they called it a, a, like an upright wolf. I think a lot of people know the story of, of, of Beast of Bray Road, but they, they gave these accounts and, and Linda drew some sketches of what they said they saw. And I think most people have seen those sketches. She felt that they were very, very credible people. And she had no reason to to uh, think that they were making things up or telling tales or really that they were uh, impaired in any way. She also did, she, she didn't know what it was. No, was it a physical entity? What was it? All she really knew, and the way she approached it, she says, I have several people who all claim to see the same thing. What it is, she didn't know. And that was kind of the start of the mystery for her. That's, that's when she said, I, I, I really want to kind of research this and find out what it is. Nobody ever seems to get a picture of it. She started asking around and, and our two sons both went to um, Elkhorn High School. And uh, as it turns out, they had some of their classmates lived on Bray Road and they had stories about as little kids seeing something off in the distance that started to walk towards them and they turned and ran. And the more Linda dug into it, the more credibility for the whole sighting of a wolfman around Elkhorn, it kind of became more and more a real possibility that there is something. I think the... Um, the turning point for Linda when she said, boy, this really is a story here, was when she got in touch with the animal control officer for Walworth County. And uh, the first thing he did, she reached into a file drawer, he pulled out a file folder, and, and Linda said, she, she looked at the, the, the label on it, and it said werewolf. That was the point she knew there was there was something there. That that's a point she knew. She knew it was a story, and uh, that that started her career. I'm curious to know what your reaction personally was when sh hearing the stories about a, a werewolf. Did you were you skeptical? Did you think that there was possibly something to it? And like, what was your belief? I told you, I, I'm an engineer, <laughs> so we think a little differently, and we deal more in hard facts, provable theories, but. Also, we, we know there's a lot of things that, that we don't see that are there. We don't see air, but we know it's there. We don't see gravity, but we know it's there. I was fairly open-minded to it. You know, I had a couple of experiences that were unexplained. So I guess I, w I was open to it. And when she started telling me about the witnesses, and, and especially the animal control officer, that, that also convinced me that there's something here. I don't know what it is. Why is it that people seem to see the same things. It's, to me, it was similar to UFOs. There's 
thousands of sightings, but no definitive proof. You, you got to kind of believe that something's going on for so many people to see the same thing, make the reports. People who have nothing, they aren't really trying to get attention. Many of them are, it's the exact opposite. They're afraid to, to say things to people. So when you put all that information together, there had to be something there. And um, so I was very supportive any way I could help, help her out. I, I would do that. But Linda was, I mean, she she was kind of a, on her own. She didn't, she never really asked a lot of people for help. She was, she was, she did her own research and she uh, did her own writing. And she just, uh, it was kind of fascinating to watch her work. Was she always interested in the paranormal or was this something, was this kind of a new topic for her at the time? I guess going back, you know, even into her high school days, uh, first off, her, her father was a, a, a science fiction advocate. <laughs> he, he, that's what he, he read. He read those books. He also, uh, he had his own uh, UFO sighting. So those things weren't new. I do remember Linda always telling, she would tell a story about, um, being in high school with some of her girlfriends, they had, they were at some party and somebody had a, one of the Ouija boards. They were using that Ouija board and she said it, it frightened her so much what had happened there that she said, I don't want any part of that. I will never do that again. And she, she said, I think we were summoning up dark demons or something. She says it, 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 it just wasn't right. I, I never want to uh, take part in that activity again. So so that was that was one thing. But then when she went to college at Whitewater, uh, which is that's only uh, ten miles from from uh, Milton where we grew up, she lived on campus and she, she came across some information that at one point there was actually was a, a school of witchcraft that was it was pretty well known in that was in Whitewater. And uh, in, in fact, she did more research on that. She was she was kind of fascinated with it, not so much because of the she knew she didn't want to become any part of witchcraft or have anything to do with that. But she was fascinated by the story, fascinated that 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 happened. In fact, uh, Whitewater has a nickname that's called Second Salem, and a lot of people don't know that. Uh, from this area, but uh, it was because there there was kind of a uh, history of of witchcraft in that area. So, uh, like I say, she she was she was interested uh, and cautious. And when we were at uh, when we lived in in uh, Sheboygan, she got kind of fascinated with the. There was a group. It was more of a new age movement that was about twenty miles away from Sheboygan. And she went. Um, she went to some of the the presentations that they had. She found that some of that stuff very interesting, but then it, that turned into uh, a point where she had she had a bad experience. We'll just put it that way with with um, what she thought was dark spirits, and then and she just I guess uh, left that place and didn't really look back. So so she had those experiences. She she was receptive, but she. She was kind of on the outside looking in and evaluating, I think, was kind of, and researching was, was the way she approached it. After she published the article, there was a kind of a 
big media surge in terms of interest in the story. How did she how did she handle that? And kind of what was what was it like following the publish publishing of that article? Well, it was yeah, it was it was quite interesting when when she wrote that article. She really didn't have any idea that it was going to get the attention that it got. And it was it was, uh, it was also kind of interesting because it, with that article, she put the label the Beast of Bray Road, never knowing that it would be I don't know if you want to call it iconic, <laughs> nationally, internationally known. But she 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 wrote the article, and uh, locally it was it was a kind of a big deal. The Walworth County Week sold more newspapers that week, and there was follow up article. They had a, almost a waiting list. They had to run make a second run. So many people were interested in that story, and then the Associated Press picked it up. And I think that was a real eye-opener for, for me and for Linda because the, the phone never quit ringing for, for days, for days <laughs> and weeks. And uh, Linda was receiving calls from all over the country, all over the world, asking for interviews. And these were large radio stations in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago, Detroit, calls from the U.K., Australia, pretty much amazing. And <laughs> the thing that that amazed me was that Linda was never nervous about talking to any of these people. She would screen some of those people. It was like she was made to do this. <laughs> she was made to do these interviews and she was made to train for eventually doing podcasts and TV shows. She was so calm about it. She would organize them. She, in, in, instead of being nervous, she would be finishing her breakfast and, and then pick up the phone and be talking to a, you know, KLZ in Los Angeles and for a million listeners. And just, you know, that, that was the way she approached it. And kind of one of the, the funny things I, I remember is, uh, she was. She had a call with, I think it was the Detroit Free Press. Immediately after that was Houston or Dallas, and it was early in the morning. And uh, she's she was upstairs, and she said, "Hey, can you bring me some tea and toast? Because I want I'm going to be on these uh, radio shows. She says I want to prepare for that." And I said, "Sure, I'll make that." And, and I walk upstairs. I, I figured she was going to be in her, her kind of makeshift office she had up there. Instead, she was in the bathroom, and I heard she was on the phone. She was talking, and I'm thinking, well, this, I'm not sure what's gonna, what I'm going to see when I walk in. But I go in the bathroom, and here's Linda taking a bubble bath. She's got the phone in one hand, and she's got a, she's got a little table set up for her tea and the toast that I made for her. And she did two or three calls just taking a bubble bath and, and uh, you know, just so amazingly calm and cool about it. And, and she will, she's not like me. <laughs> she doesn't stutter when she talks. She was just so smooth. It sounds, sounded like she was, uh, um, you know, very seasoned broadcaster. So it sounds like she actually found this to be pretty fun. Like she, she enjoyed this. It wasn't in like a, a negative, overwhelming amount of attention. It was actually something she enjoyed. 
Oh, exactly. She, she, she enjoyed, I don't know if it was so much the int- attention. She liked giving out the information. She liked, ha- I think she did like having, I think the positive attention from it, but she didn't, she didn't bask in it. She didn't, uh, you know, that, it kind of, that really wasn't a driving force for her. She just found it was interesting. She just liked to give information out. She liked to, to uh, have people see, you know, through her, her, her artwork and I think in her teaching, she she just liked to reach out to people and give them information and and uh, and she also had a lot of fun with it. Did she face any challenges in reporting on the story, like either from the community in Elkhorn or the residents of Bray Road, like anything that maybe caused her trouble after the, the publishing of the story? At the time she wrote this story, if you think about it, really the Bigfoot and Dogman and crypto was was really not a mainstream topic like it is today. You know, today with the History Channel and uh, all the different TV shows, people are really aware of the sightings. You know, we, people had heard about UFOs, but again, that was just something you'd read an article about once in a while. The Loch Ness Monster, you would hear a little bit about that. But uh, it certainly was nothing like today. So when, when this story broke, there were a lot of people who, who were really skeptical, and they thought she was um, kind of crazy for writing it, that she was making things up. She was trying to profit on it in some way, which I can tell you that never happened. And uh, so it was it, it was very difficult for her, but then, then there were this small groups of people who would then start uh, uh, I think probably the, the biggest thing that happened was now all of a sudden with this notoriety locally, she was starting to get contacted by people who had similar sightings uh, or knew someone who did. Sometimes they were 20 years previous and people didn't want to report things because they thought they were afraid of ridicule. So she kind of became a clearinghouse for strange events. And I think that's what kind of really uh, uh, turned the corner for her, for Linda to start looking at UFOs and not just the Beast of Bray Road, the Dogman thing. She she looked at paranormal things with haunted houses. She got interested in that. She would be contacted by people and chupacabras and just uh, just lots of crazy things. Eventually, she wrote a book, which is a really great book. I love, I love how she inserts humor, and but also takes the topic seriously. Can you talk about the book, The Beast of Bray Road, and how she came about writing that, and kind of what that experience was like? Actually, it, The Beast of Bray Road was not the first book that Linda wrote. She had written a uh, story about a true crime that w- that occurred in the 1930s, I believe, in Whitewater, where a woman had poisoned her husband and actually tried to poison her kids. Now, that was called The Poison Widow. And uh, that was a kind of a local publishing company out of Madison did that book. So she, she did she did that book. And then she did a book for um, Barnes & Noble that was called Weird Wisconsin. And that, that actually was her first two books that she wrote. And then she decided, well, I I guess I better write one on the Beastbury Road. So she um, took all her notes and she had she had so many notes and she had done so much research on connections, trying to explain the sightings. What is the Beast of Bray Road? Is it real? Is it not? And she had just tons and tons of, of notes and files and 
research that she had done on at local libraries and talking to other witnesses, that it was it actually was kind of easy for her to put the book together because she, she just had she had so much material. It was just putting it in the right perspective in the right order to make sense out of it. And then she, Linda just did have a knack for humor. Uh, she, she, it was kind of a subtle humor that she would put in those books, but it made it, I think, more interesting and entertaining for, for people to read the books and enjoy them. And then uh, uh, it's, it's, it's still a pretty popular book. Through all her research, because she did so much research on the topic and spoke to so many people, did she ever come to a conclusion in terms of what her belief of what people were seeing was? Did she ever feel sure of what it was or was she still unsure at the end? I think you're, it's fair to say she was unsure at the end. There was still, she never came across anything that, that would answer all the questions about the, the beast of Bray Road and so many of those sightings. Even if you want to throw Bigfoot in there, what why do people see these things? Why does nobody ever get a picture of them? Why do they seem to appear in certain spots and not other spots? Um, how can the footprints start here and then end? And there were just there were so many pieces to put together. I actually, she, Linda did a lot of research on. Um, I mean, she studied quantum physics. She studied portals wormholes and just has dozens of books on that trying to look for to see if that was an answer and i actually think she she was leaning towards the phenomena or the of, of the beast Bay road and the michigan dog man and and the similar things was perhaps a, a portal some kind of portal that was that was the only thing that she really ever came up with that she said it, it really can explain everything these you know something comes just seems to appear and seems to disappear and s somehow people can't can't get pictures of it she says it's just kind of this um, interdimensional thing and she, but she says that the bad thing is i can't prove that either so she was she just loved digging into the 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 depths of of the possibilities and and i would say that was kind of you know that was kind of the leading contender, we'll say, in, in her uh, research. After she wrote The Beast of Bray Road, she went on to write quite a few more books. Can you kind of talk about her legacy as a writer, um, even beyond The Beast of Bray Road? She kind of expanded her interests from, from just the, you know, she, she researched The Beast of Bray Road and then The Michigan Dog Man. It was kind of that genre that she, she wrote about. But then she she became interested in so many other things through research and through the calls that she got. Sea monsters, chupacabras, wendigos. And she had such a, a, a body of research. She, she wrote Monsters Among Us, which is almost like a dictionary or encyclopedia of land, sea, and air monsters. <laughs> and uh, she, she explored in such detail, every, every single as, you know aspect of the the, the Mothman and the uh, various sea monster sightings, and she, and she knew the thing that was amazing to me is that Linda would be on a podcast and they would get on a conversation. She would pull out some. She said, "Well, that's very similar to in 1795. There was a sighting in Queensland, Scotland." Uh, 
that was very similar. And, and she knew all the details. She didn't have research in front of her. And she could pull out any of those things at, at any time. And, and she just had the amazing uh, ability to uh, remember the facts and the relationships and the similarities of all these things. And, and that was kind of evident in, in her writing. Linda was a very prolific writer. She could sit down and she would just pound through page after page after page. And, uh, and it was just amazing that she was able to do that. And she, she would she would write and write and write, and she, she would hit, write 20 pages in a day. And then she'd go back and she'd edit them, and she had very few edits. She just was able to uh, put together the paragraphs and the thoughts and the sequences and the relationships uh, in her mind. And just, I think she would have the entire book kind of planned out ahead of time, and she'd just sit down and write it. That's really, that's really impressive. I mean, do you think from watching her through this process, do you think there's any advice that other creatives could take or any lessons other creatives or writers could take from Linda that might help them in their own their own writing and their, their own creation? A lot of people don't realize how many different things <laughs> Linda did in her lifetime. She actually was uh, did a couple of segments for the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction that was on how to write books. It's very interesting. And they, they came and filmed in our house and, and she gave some pointers of how how she would put together her notes and how she would storybook uh, uh, certain chapters out and uh, talk about writer's block and all those things. So she, she, was, she was very, very good at that. But I think um, if we're really looking at the advice that I would give to um, writers or people, I guess, uh, who are looking to research paranormal is that Linda was, she, she recognized that there were people from all different levels in, in I'll just call it the, the paranormal community that she went to. There were people who were more like, uh, they, they were observers. They came to uh, be entertained and came to learn a little bit and they would, maybe like to buy the souvenirs and those types of things. And that was fine. She, Linda was very happy to do that. That was kind of her audience, you know, the, 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 the bigger audience. And then there were the people who were getting more interested in it. Uh, and they would do more research and they would, you know, maybe look locally to see what uh, uh, was of interest there and, and maybe focus on the Beast of Bray Road or focus on some legend that was in their area. And that, that was fine. I know Linda was kind of in the super category of researchers and she was so serious and she did so much research in depth. That was what allowed her to be, I think, such a prolific writer because she had all that knowledge. She didn't have to keep turning books open as she was writing. She, she knew what she was talking about. She knew the subject so well, it was easy for her. And she didn't make things up, you know, out of the, the thin air just to take space. And also, she, she didn't take everything that she read at face value. She would do some research and she would check those people out. And she she had 300 books in her library, research books. And she had, I'd say 95% of them had at least 10 notes in them. 
when she read those, she researched it. And she she would make notes of what she she read. She would I would see her pick up a book and she would go and she would just review that to keep that information fresh in her mind. And I, I remember asking her one time. She, she said, "I said, uh, well, how come all these books have notes in them and this book doesn't?" She says, "Well, I read that book and there was nothing of any value in it." <laughs> And that's the way she was. And she and I, I, I think that the lesson to be learned there was if you're really serious about writing and doing a good job and being honest and being similar to the way Linda approached things, you have to, to study those books and make your own decisions and decide what's the real useful information, what's the real research and then also, uh, I think that another thing that set Linda apart is she, she wasn't just interested in reporting and compiling other people's information and theories. She developed her own theories. And she, and she did the research. I, I mentioned the, the quantum physics. I mean, how many people go to that depth to try to figure things out? She, she, she was good at that. And I, I think that's kind of a, really the important thing that that she would probably tell people too is don't don't be too limited in your research in this area she she did her own research she did stakeouts in the in the hay fields uh, to see if they would see some lights or anything special at night she would uh, take walks in the kettle moraine area or different other forests and she would visit haunted houses or and things and she, she was a kind of a boots on the ground let's go I want to see for myself uh, and witnesses she it, if she could talk to them in person rather than call them on the phone she would do that and that and and that was I think made things a little more real for her rather than just being a reporter did she ever see anything that she thought was the beast? I don't think so much the beast of Bray Road. She she was on a couple of, um, was, like I say, she she went out in the field quite a bit. There were a couple of times she she felt that she she may have seen a foot or something moving in the in the woods, but she was also a little bit careful to think. Well, it could have been something else. She did actually, you know, we, we lived for many years uh, in the, actually the, the very southern end of the Kettle Moraine Forest was right right next to our house. And uh, she, she was walking down the, the street of our rural subdivision and there was about a maybe 10 acre wooded area and she's walking with one of her friends. There was a large branch. They looked down, a large branch had a tree that's like an eight foot or excuse me, eight inch diameter branch, very big branch, was moving and shaking and there was no wind. And then it just broke and fell to the ground. And they all looked at it and uh, they got the, enough courage to go look at it. And they had no explanation for why that particular branch would have possibly fallen off that tree. She knew that there were strange things Never did she see anything that was so definitive. She said, I saw it 10 feet away by the side of the road. But, you know, I think uh, 
she believes that that there were things that she came across that that certainly were unexplainable. Do you remember any of the encounters um, that Linda gathered of the Beast of Bray Road that you might be able to recount, like a favorite you know or a favorite that she had? Well, I I think I was really was just the the very original three or four reports that she she talked to um, that you've seen on, on TV or that she she wrote about where they actually saw the creature kind of squatting by the side of the road eating a roadkill. I think that was the and and the one who claimed that it it scratched her car. Those I think were the two definitive ones that that she talked about. There were a few other uh, sightings and stories she had, like I had mentioned, the, the the school kids who uh, who lived on Bray Road told very credible story about you know they're seeing as a group. There were several kids all say the same thing that they they saw. It, it looked like a wolf walking up. I don't think there's any one particular one that 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 stands out it's just kind of the whole collection of them that is is what really gives it the credibility how do you think linda would want to be remembered um professionally and personally she's very talented and and so many people people who are listening to this broadcast probably know linda pretty much through her only through her writings and her podcasts and don't realize what kind of a person she was and they don't realize the the career that she had prior to that the teaching and the artistry and the the many friends she had she was a tremendous wife and companion to me we raised two wonderful children uh, with three grandsons she enjoyed so much being around the family she was a very devout christian and uh, she never let her Christian principles be compromised by uh, the things that she wrote about and the things that she investigated. She always kept those separate. She she was very, very proud of the quality of work that she did. And I think the fact that she didn't compromise her her beliefs. She, she had so, so many friends it's, it's, especially later on, she had so many friends in the cryptology community that were very close to her, very dear to her, and uh, she she enjoyed those friendships. And I think she she would like to be remembered more as a, a, a friend and companion, teacher, uh, and and just generally a a good, friendly person. If our listeners want to um, honor Linda's memory and help a cause that she was passionate about. Is there anything that they can do to either donate or, or help a cause that maybe? Most definitely. The, <clears throat> the first would be the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. And this is something people, most people don't realize that Linda was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had a partial mastectomy in about 2004. And at that time, she was told that it was very serious and they, they were very concerned if she was going to live. And it just so happened that there were some experimental treatments that she had access to. And basically that cured her from cancer. She was cancer-free after after that. It kind of gave her a new lease on life. And she was so thankful that there were organizations like Breast Cancer Research Foundation that, that would provide the research to I guess save save lives, give hope to people who otherwise didn't have hope. 
So that was the first one. And then the, the, the second one is the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, that in about 2009, Linda was diagnosed with Parkinson's. It was at that point, about that time, we noticed that she, she was having a little difficulty uh, walking. She had kind of a funny walk, and then she was starting to get shaky hands. And it was that, you know, typical Parkinson's. And after that diagnosis, she, she, she got to the point, and this, this is 2009, she got, she got to the point where she could no longer even type on her keyboard. And uh, then she started taking some medications that they came out with. And that totally changed things. At, at that point, she was back, um, she was back on the keyboard, uh, uh, able, to, able to type, she was able to drive, she was able to travel. And she would was able to do those things without people even knowing. Uh, you know, so many of those TV shows that she was on, History Channel, uh, occurred after that time and after 2009. And uh, people didn't know. And that was because of the the advances in the in the uh, medications and the treatments for Parkinson's, and uh, so so that was very very important f- for her. And and if, I guess it, it's probably the primary one that that she was interested in, and that that she felt was really an important organization. But that's Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to share before we wrap up about Linda or about the the story of the Beast of Bray Road? One last thing, you know, Linda, her her last project, the one that that she finished, um, was actually in twenty twenty, I believe. Right, it was right at the start of COVID. Linda became very interested in the large number of sightings of black cougars in a portion in the southwestern portion of Wisconsin to the point where she she um, she had been corresponding and had met a couple times with a guy named Steve Stanick who lived in Hillsboro which was kind of the the center of the area of all these sightings and he he was a um, reporter for the local newspaper and he had over a hundred sightings of these black cougars, which weren't even supposed to exist in nature, and that the Department of Natural Resources and national um, zoologists said didn't exist, but people people had those sightings. And it was kind of like also one of those things that people saw them, but nobody would get pictures of them. So she, she became interested in that, and our, our youngest son, Nate, uh, he graduated from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and he had a strong background in film production. Well, Linda and Nate and myself, to some extent, I was, I was kind of the driver for the expedition, but uh, we, we did some filming and actually Linda produced a documentary on on those sightings. And uh, very interesting. That was kind of the last thing that she worked on. And actually, it, it, was, it was so unfortunate that it came at a point in about tw- 2020 that she was having more problems in from her Parkinson's related uh, uh, issues. She she was she wasn't able to really follow through with that. And also, when COVID hit, it, it it's it was like two days before the the mask mandates came out was the day that 
we just finished up with the film festival <laughs> launching the film. <laughs> so you can imagine how uh, detrimental that was to, to launching that project. But that was one of the, the favorite things. And I think that was something that she really wanted to follow up on. And that, that would have been her next big push because she had been in contact with people who had similar circumstances in the UK. And there was a, a similar area in Maine. And that was kind of her next big uh, adventure, I think, and unfortunately, that that just didn't come about. But that was uh, it was, uh, I think, the one project that would that would have been her next project. It would have been the next big thing. And I think the other thing that that as I was just preparing for this show, putting some notes together, I got to thinking about the uh, amazing situation back when Linda first got the assignment to. Uh, to follow up and check out these sightings on, on Bray Road. And she, I won't say reluctantly, she, by default, she was the one who went to do the story. If somebody else would have went, I doubt if it would have turned out the way that it turned out for Linda because uh, just because of her style. But she, you know, she named the beast of Bray Road. She did the research that, that kind of solidified it as a, uh, you know, its own crypto entity. And uh, there's so many things, all the, all these groups, and there's been many tributes to Linda. She was on so many shows talking about that. If she wouldn't have been there that one day, the, the whole Beast of Bray Road thing would still be a kind of an undiscovered uh, entity. So it was just such an amazing coincidence how those things all kind of snowballed from that. Who knows what would have happened, but uh, I just thought, I got to thinking how interesting that was. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. It helps get this content in front of more listeners, which means we can produce more episodes more often. Visit our website at www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Tarara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Tarara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergi Cheramizanov.